Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Wanted to start off by reading a, a card that a friend sent me that he got in the mail. <clears throat> it says, Meditate like a Zen monk at the push of a button. <clears throat> Remarkable audio technology transports you effortlessly and safely into the brainwave states of deep meditation, relaxing stress relief, profound emotional healing, high-performance mental abilities, increased self-awareness, guaranteed. (laughs) Experience deep Zen-like meditation, makes meditation easy, accelerates results. Permanently heals dysfunctional feelings and behaviors, even those which have stubbornly resisted other approaches. And then one testimony from a fellow in Australia. It's fantastic. You can really feel yourself improving, evolving, getting calmer, more aware, etc. Everything it claims to do. Um, Interested? (laughs) And it's a... It's a cassette. I I checked it out. You know, I didn't want to pass up. It got my curiosity. And uh, it's a cassette um, that costs $150 that if you um, play, there you are, guaranteed. Sounds good, but um, things don't usually work out that easily. And I have a a little bit more confidence in what we're doing here as far as truly making changes and transforming ourselves. Um, Because old habits die hard. This takes work. The habits of the mind have been practiced for our lifetimes. And yet, it's possible to change. The Buddha, in one discourse uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya, he says um, he looked at his mind before he was enlightened, and he saw there were two classes of thoughts. One class were thoughts of um, ill will, sense desire, and cruelty. And he's, he, this is before, before he was enlightened, you know, not... So there's hope for you yet. This is as he was deeply immersed in practice. And he, so when I followed those thoughts, uh, there was uh, afflictive feelings for myself, for others. It didn't feel good. And then he saw another class of thoughts of non-desire or letting go, um, non-ill will or loving kindness and non-cruelty or compassion. He said when he saw these thoughts in his mind, excuse me, he, um, he saw that he, uh, he felt good and there, were, there was a, a comfort in his mind. And so he said he just practiced those thoughts and abandoned the other thoughts. 
And then in this same discourse, the, this line, which has been very um, uh, inspiring, simple but inspiring for me, he said, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of their mind. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of their mind. And although he said in the discourse, I I abandoned those unwholesome thoughts and developed those wholesome thoughts, it's not so easy for us to do just like that. But what he did say is it's possible to change. It's absolutely possible to change. That we have a choice once we understand how the mind works, which is what we're doing here. We're practicing looking at this mind-body process and seeing again and again how we get caught, how we uh, don't get caught, how we uh, can hold our experience wisely. Once we see how the mind works, then we have a choice which thoughts to energize and cultivate and which ones to not give energy to. We have a choice. And once we see where real happiness lies, it all is about changing these habits of mind. How do we change? How exactly does this change happen? Because we can see, okay, when I have these kinds of thoughts, I feel uplifted and at ease and spacious and connected and wise. When I have these, I, I don't. It would be a no-brainer. Oh, okay, I'll just have more of these and get, have less of these. But what is exactly the process that we change? And this is what I want to talk about tonight, particularly um, regarding the power of intention. Intention is the, the second link in the Eightfold Path. Sometimes it's called right thought or right aspiration, right attitude, or right or wise intention. That once you have an understanding of the possibility, the first link, wise understanding or, or wise right view, then, and you see where happiness lies, intention is deciding to face in the right direction, to cultivate that for yourself. And from that wise intention, the rest of the Eightfold Path follows. Right? Speech, action, livelihood. We, we get clear where our happiness lies with regard to relationships in the world and wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration, the practice that, that we're doing here. But it starts with the intention to 
cultivate and develop ourselves and come to wholeness, whatever you want to call it. Awaken, be present, wake up. There's two levels of intention. Um, and I'll mostly be focusing on one level for this talk. And I think the, uh, this, the next talk I give, I'll focus on the other one. Um, one level has to do with volition. In terms of, in every moment, we can meet the moment with either greed, hatred, or delusion, or non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And in that moment, we are planting the seeds. We are, through whichever of those we are cultivating, we are planting the seeds for either suffering or happiness. The Buddha said, this is really the understanding of, of karma and how it works. And the Buddha said that Intention is karma. He says, intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending, one creates karma by way of body, speech, and mind. And every moment that we are planting those seeds of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, we are inclining our mind towards more happiness. And I'll talk more about that, I think, the next time um, I have a chance to, to be in the seat with you. Um, the other level of intention is what I want to mainly focus on tonight. In terms of aspiration, that when we get clear in our hearts what we want to create in our lives, when we are connected to our motivation for practice, there is a real um, energizing of practice. Until then, you might, it might sound like a good idea. You might have a, a friend that said, oh yeah, this is a good thing to do, or you read in a book, and you might be curious. Um, and maybe, you know, we've all perhaps gone through that phase where um, for myself, I just felt that meditation was going to be good for me. I didn't know quite exactly why, but I just knew I needed to cool out a little bit. And found that it was, it was helpful initially. I tried other kinds of meditation. And then when I, when I got, was exposed to these teachings, and first heard Joseph, uh, Goldstein, my teacher in 1974, I said, I've come home. This, I was in so much suffering, I just was going for it. And had that strong motivation out of my suffering. And I don't know, I forget if I mentioned this the last time, but just want to say that if you have a lot of suffering in your life, sometimes you're more motivated. So, um, that, that doesn't have to be an obstacle. It could be a blessing, a launching, if, it, if you re- really get clear on your motivation and intention. There's that, a Tibetan saying that I love. It says, um, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. Now, what is intention? 
in terms of this aspiration. It's not, oh, it would be nice if. It's not wishing or hoping. It's a, a decision to actualize a vision that has somehow touched you or inspired you. That it, it gives life and juice to some idea of what you sense would be good for you. There is a clear, heartfelt connection when we are in touch with our intention. For me, one very inspiring line that, that really um, moved me and, and still does move me to practice is the Buddha's very simple statement, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. But it is possible, and this is why I teach. And I just had this feeling that he, well, as perhaps I think everyone in this room has, that he was just telling it like it is. And he was saying, it is possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion. If it were not possible, I wouldn't tell you to. But it is. This is why I teach. So I want to explore with you getting in touch with this heartfelt decision that, that I know is there in all of our hearts. You wouldn't be coming to this place and taking this time and practicing in, in, in such a, uh, a committed way if there wasn't that heartfelt intention. But I just want to name it and, and give it more life as you, as you practice. First, something that intention is not. Intention is not expectation and is not a goal where you are sitting there with a timetable. Well, have I gotten it yet? If you have a timetable or a report card going, you are working against yourself and your intention will shrivel up into a pass-fail test. This is not what it's about. It's not about being the perfect yogi, being the hindrance-free yogi, and having some kind of measure of what we think a good meditator is. And I think we could probably go around the room if we could tap into everybody's mind, and we'd probably have 25 different ideas of what a a good meditator is. And they can change from time to time. Gee, if I was sitting longer, gosh, somebody sitting for two hours, three hours, God, I can't sit like that. All right, if I sit longer, then I'll be a good meditator. Or if I'm just simple and easy and just not be so rigid about my practice and somehow just be natural, then I'll be a good meditator. And when I do that, I'll know. That kind of 
report card that we have going for us, most, most of it, I know, I sure, surely have seen that in my own mind, is just, um, it's just an idea that it's impossible to measure up against. We're sometimes so afraid of making mistakes that um, our practice becomes tight because we think if I make mistake, I won't get to what I think is supposed to happen. And it's not like that at all because we have no idea what's around the corner. And as soon as we either think we do or hope that, that we'll, we'll get our imagined goal, um, we are moving out of the moment and into our story. So just facing in the right direction is the key. And then just seeing how it goes. I remember on one retreat, I was practicing at the retreat center, uh, during the fall one retreat and um, I'd been practicing for a number of years it was I think my, it was my second three month course and I it was like I entered a whole other world that I'd never seen before it was really amazing and I went into an interview with Joseph and I said I don't know what I've been doing before but you know this is like oh a whole other, you know, galaxy. You know, it's so, you know, it's it's so different. It's so amazing, you know. And he said, oh, yeah, I know that feeling. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I get it every time I sit. You know? <laughs> right? And then he, he leaned forward. I'll, I'll, this is indelible in my mind. He leaned forward and he said, uh, and you know what? We're at the tip of the iceberg. And he had this... I just got shivers remembering that. Just this sparkle in his eye. We're at the tip of the iceberg. And he wasn't saying, oh, there's so much more that we have to learn, you know. Oh, you were just at the beginning. He said it with this sparkle and excitement. Yeah, we're at the tip of the iceberg. Isn't it exciting? That kind of attitude where it's not, well, am I there yet? You know, well, come on, let's, you know, they said things would change, and, you know, let's get on with it, you know. Uh, is not what this practice is about. It's, oh, let's see. Let's see what this one is like. Let's see how I can learn today. And as long as we're facing in the right direction, we don't have to be concerned about how the unfolding is happening. That's not up to us. To just believe in the possibility is enough. Because part of the process is learning each step of the way from our mistakes. Or when we go into a, a, a valley and get confused and we come out the other end and say, oh, yeah, oh, that's amazing. I can survive that. Oh, I learned so much from being with my sadness or my fear or my doubt or whatever it is uh-uh. and each time it, it gives us more confidence uh, Thomas Edison um, was once asked, I read this and I forget where I was but he was once asked um, by a reporter after he had invented the light bulb you know, years later and it took him quite, quite a, a long time 
um, he said, this reporter said, how did it feel to fail 2,000 times before you invented the light bulb? And Edison looked at him and he said, my dear man, I did not fail. I invented the light bulb. And it was a 2,000 step process. So when you think that, oh, I keep on backsliding and, and uh, losing it, uh, that's, you're missing the point. All you need to do is connect with your intention and little by little you learn and you wake up. This is a passage that I love. I don't, maybe you're familiar with it. <clears throat> About the process of learning and waking up. This is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. She says, Chapter One, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter Two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. That's the process of learning. And as long as we're committed to keep on waking up every time we fall in a hole, that chapter 3 is where we're spending a, a lot of time. I might still fall in. I see it is there. My eyes are open. I know where I am. And when she says, it is my fault, not to blame yourself, but to see, oh, I have a choice here. I can take responsibility and walk down another street. So intention is not about expectation or getting our goal on time. It's about facing in the right direction and continually learning. Something else about intention. And this is a, a question or a, an issue that comes up for people who are really exploring the, the purity of their intention. Sometimes we see that our intentions are mixed. That it's not 100% pure. You know, I want to be generous but there's an ulterior motive. Maybe people will notice how generous I am or thank me for it. Or I want to be present, but I'm kind of afraid to be present. It's scared and it's scary. Or I want to practice diligently, but as I said last time, it's nice to look good too. So this can be very discouraging when you are aware, when you've 
busted yourself and your motives and it's not 100% pure. You know, if you're old enough to remember ivory snow, 99 and 44, 100% pure. But if there's just even a little bit of impurity, 600% impurity or 5% or 10% impurity, and there's a little ego in there, some of us have a tendency to just look at that and say, yeah, right, you know, don't give me this purity. Look at all that ego. When you do that, you've discounted the 90% purity. And what you do is just give that less than noble motivation more and more life until it becomes the defining perspective. I'm not as pure as I think. Who am I kidding? This is a great disservice. Because until you are a fully enlightened being, there's probably going to be some selfing hanging around. Some little vestige of, of ego at times, or most, much of the time, most of the time, a little bit of that. The way I see it, this doesn't have to be a problem. This is just being human. And even with those mixed intentions, if you keep on focusing and connecting with the intention that inspires you, that is coming from a purity of heart, it's like you're riding that one and reconnecting with the juice. Just knowing, yeah, those other intentions are there. I'm still human. I still have have a, a sense of self at times I get lost in. Even if it's 50-50, or even if it's 90-10 in the not-such-good balance, focus on the 10. Focus on that purity of heart, because that's what you'll keep on giving life to. And this is where... Uh, it's important to really listen, as I said last time, to really connect with that purity, that sincerity, because it's there, and it has a very different feel to it in the body and in the mind when we are hearing that place of authenticity and sincerity and purity of heart. Just learning to listen to that. Now, along with this the quality of connecting with a pure intention, something else that I think is really key to this process as we energize our practice by our own purity of heart is getting in touch with how much we are honest about our willingness to change. Because we might have all kinds of ideas of how nice it would be, but if we don't have this belief in the possibility and a clear, wholehearted decision to change, then um, we're not going to. Many years ago, I was at a retreat. I was sitting at a retreat down in Yucca Valley. 
Southern California. And each, um, each day there's a, there was a session of body movement um, taught by somebody from the Lomi School that, that really uh, brought mindfulness into, into the body. And um, at the end of the session, often the people, people would come up with, uh, with questions to the instructor, whoever that was for the day. And this one day, I had, um, I had a question after the, uh, after the session. So I was up there with, oh, maybe a half a dozen people or so who had some questions. And this one, um, this one woman... Um, was explaining her situation. Everybody was 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 there could hear, and uh, she asked the the instructor for some tips about how to uh, how to work with a particular condition she had, and he offered her um, suggestion, and she said, "Oh no no no! I couldn't do that because um, this might be aggravated." Okay, and then he. He said, okay. And then he offered her um, another suggestion, completely different approach. And um, she said, no, I don't think I can do that either because uh, this might, this might uh, go out. He said, okay. And then he offered her a third alternative and said, um, again, completely different, different part of the body. She said, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can do that either because... Um, this might go out. And this was a relatively healthy person. And then he, he stopped and he said, um, you know, as she deftly parried the, the third one, he said, you know, I think your intention to stay the same is greater than your intention to change. And when your intention to change is greater than your intention to stay the same, then you'll probably change. And you know, the silence was deafening, and it was like, wow, he really, you know, just seemed to get her. Um, and it was a really important moment for me. I forget exactly what I asked about. I completely forgot, but that was the teaching. And it's not necessarily about one's body or whatever. It's one's heart that if we have the intention to change that's within the realm of possibility, then we will change. And again, it's not just wishing or hoping. It's deciding. Now, what this requires is Believing in the possibility. As I came across some, I forget who said this, but the line, if you think something is impossible, you'll make it impossible. The Buddha saying, uh, we are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. What we think, our reality, becomes or what our, what our thoughts are becomes our reality. And so it's really important to notice what limiting beliefs we have. Oh, this happened to me when I was this age. And so um, it's, 
this is my lot in life. Um, so many stories like this. And also so many stories of people who've had deep, deep um, tragedy, suffering, um, challenges, and have used them to be a launching for tremendous understanding and wisdom. Not to believe our story. Oh, I'm someone who can't whatever. Or I always whatever. Noticing the stories about our past, about our capacity, about whatever ideas that we have of how we're limiting, it's just not so. We can change. I want to share with you a couple of stories around this. Um, I want to share with you an anecdote from a book that um, I, I love. This is called How We Choose to Be Happy. It's by Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. Um, and these, these guys who've become friends of mine, um, they interviewed 300-plus people uh, over a three-year period that were identified as extremely happy people. Right? That was their their quest. And I, I, I use this in a, I love to teach uh, or share about happiness and, and joy. And, um, and this was, uh, this is a, a primer that I use for it. And these, these guys, they go into, they travel around everywhere, around the country, around Canada, Mexico, Europe. And they go into, say they go into a town in rural Alabama, right? They go into the diner and they'd say, Who's the happiest peop- person you know? And generally, people in the, the diner would agree, you know, oh, Shirley, she's the happiest one in town. Then they go and interview Shirley. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm pretty happy. And then they'd say, well, is it okay if we interview some, some other people who might know a different part of you, like your family or your coworkers? And then if they, and she said, sure. And then they would, they'd agree. And then they'd do this, Interview and if everybody thought, yeah, this person is pretty happy, then they give her an in-depth interview on why she's so happy, what her secrets of happiness are. And by the way, um, as they say, a happy person isn't happy all the time. And the people who who said, oh yeah, I'm a happy person and have a kind of pasted smile on their face are usually living in denial. But uh, happy people are people who are engaged and who somehow can be here for everything, the, the good and the bad, and still have a, um, um, an expansive heart and a happy attitude. So they distilled all of, these re, uh, all of this research into nine common choices that all of these people had, consciously or unconsciously. And the first choice in the book is intention. And it's the intention to be happy which is not what a whole lot of people get in touch with. Sometimes we have the intention to be successful or to be loved or to be okay, but to go for happiness, 
this is um, not as common. And here we are going for the highest happiness. So that's kind of very blessed karma. But the people that they interviewed were not just, it had nothing to do with socioeconomics, had nothing to do with with particular demographics. And in fact, it had nothing to do with, with having a blessed life. In fact, there's stories woven throughout of people basically who've chosen happiness after being in a lot of dukkha. And this is one story I want to share with you. One of my favorites. A woman they call Adele, who, and I've become friends, as I say, particularly with Rick. He said, this woman just kind of lights up the room. As one of our first interviewees, Adele showed us early on that happy people don't necessarily live charmed lives. In 1991, she experienced an unusually tragic set of losses. Her life unraveled as the losses began to pile up. In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. This is her talking. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground. This is the Oakland fire. Leaving me with nothing. No clothes, photos, furniture. No material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman at the same time that my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. So, yeah, yeah, that is the usual, like, you have to laugh and, like, oh my God, is. This is true. Everything in Adele's life disappeared, and she had to make decisions about how to go on, but without establishing some form of intention, she'd be immobilized. What were her intentions? Having lost everything, she had many intentions to establish, but she started with the most fundamental of them. Would she live or die? This is her talking again. I had nothing. I was so filled with grief... I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see that this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. It goes on to say about her process, she didn't just say, okay, now I'll be happy. She had to go through a lot of grieving and a lot of loss and a lot of pain and, and, and dealing with that. But her intention was clear, and she, as I say, is this bright light. Just because she didn't believe in 
that her life was over and saw her decision to make that happen. This is another, uh, one more anecdote around this that I I love from, um, this is a book called Authentic Happiness by Martin Seligman, which is the, he's the father of this movement in psychology called positive psychology. Instead of seeing pathology he um, is, there's this whole very popular movement in the last 10 years on seeing how we can, uh, what wellness is about and how we can be happy. And he was the president of the American Psychological Association, so he had a lot of influence. And this is how the positive psychology movement started. Mm. It was... While I was weeding in my garden with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki, I have to confess that even though I've written a book and many articles about children, I'm actually not very good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm weeding. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air and dancing and singing. (laughs) Since she was distracting me, I yelled at her, and she walked away. Within a few minutes, she was back, saying... Daddy, I want to talk to you. Yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from when I was three until when I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. On my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. This was an epiphany for me. In terms of my own life, Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul and the last 10 years as a walking nimbus cloud in a household radiant with sunshine. And any good fortune I had was probably not due to being grumpy, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. And that was the start of the positive psychology movement. We can decide at any time to change. First, it means having a positive vision of what is possible. And I also want to share this in terms of not only what is possible in our own internal experience, but I just want to put in a word for seeing the possibility in this very um, complicated and sometimes uh, discouraging world. This is from Howard Zinn, the great historian. Um, taught, this is from an essay called the, uh, the Optimism of Uncertainty. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. 
if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. What we focus on, we give life to, whether it's in the world, if we see, oh, what's the point, then we become just part of the discouragement. If we see a positive vision, that becomes contagious. And it's the same within ourselves. When we have a clear intention, then it becomes our protection. I was with, uh, fortunate enough to be with um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama at a, a conference um, a number of years ago in Dharamsala. And uh, in the conference, somebody asked him one day, um, what do you do with all the suffering? How do you handle, how do you deal all the suf- with all the suffering around you? And with, in a moment, without a moment's thought, he said, my sincere motivation is my protection. And then the next day, somebody asked him, what do you do about fear? You know, he said that, that sometimes he, he's ar- around people who have so much fear, they've been so... Um, mistreated, and even he at times can have fear. What do you do with all that fear? How do you work with it? And he said, the same answer, my sincere motivation is my protection. And it is our greatest protection, our sincerity of heart, that connects us with something deeper than our mind, with something that is... Um, pure and good and aligned with truth. So I would really encourage you as you get in touch with whatever is happening that you keep connected to the sincerity of your practice as your great protection. Now, how to get in touch with our highest intention in, in, the, in the teachings, there's this notion of clear comprehension of purpose, that once you get in touch with your highest purpose, your highest intention, that holds all the difficulties, all the times you fall in the pothole and, and come out the other way. But we need to get in touch with that clear comprehension of purpose. And it can change over time. It's not, that's it. And for the rest of my life, you might have many different things that inspire you at different times. But it's important to get in touch with what is really inspiring you now. And I'll, I'll share a more story um, about this for me. Um, it was on actually the same time that I was going to uh, that conference in, in India, in Dharamsala, my plane was routed to stop in Frankfurt, Germany. And when I told a friend that I was uh, stopping in Frankfurt, um, she said, oh, you should visit Mother Mira, this great holy woman, um, sage. And I know that she'd been very inspired by Mother Mira. 
And I said, oh, well, yeah, well, maybe I'll do that. She said, no, 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 you really, you should visit Mother Mira. I said, okay. And then I found out that Mother Mira could grant you the boon of whatever you asked. I said, okay, I'll visit Mother Mira. Let's see, we'll go with that. So I arranged to stop over for a couple of nights in, uh, at uh, her center. And uh, the first night I was there, and you're in this room with maybe 150 people or so, and she comes in, no Dharma talk, no uh, nothing. She just sits and uh, radiates love. It's a pretty good gig when you can be, be in that space. And uh, one by one, when you're ready, you come up, sit in front of her, and there's like there's an on deck circle, so and it's your you can just know when it's your turn. You feel like going up, and then you um, put your head down, and she does something, uh, some kind of thing on the back of your neck. I don't know. It was explained maybe she was unraveling karmic knots. I don't know what is going on, but she does this thing, <laughs> and then she lets go, and then you look into her eyes into like this ocean of eternity uh, and do that for a little while and then she closes her eyes like, okay, that's the end. You know? And it's about 45 seconds. I know because I timed it, you know, each one. You know. Okay, so if she granted me the boon of what I really wanted, what did I really want? And I didn't want to just rush up there, you know, at the beginning. I wanted to get clear. What do I really want? What if this is true? You know, well, do I want another experience? No, they all come and go. Do I want some thing, another gadget, another toy, another object? They all come and go. What do I really, really want? And I kept on reflecting and reflecting and going inside. And then when I got clear, I went up. And perhaps with that intensity of the attention, um, it just deeply imprinted itself in my consciousness. And... From that time on, what I got in touch with then, I say every day, I say before I give a talk, I say before I'm going to be with somebody for, for a while, just to remind myself, this is what I really want. This is what speaks to me. And just doing that, getting clear on that, has more and more brought it to life. Now I ask you, if you were in my position and you were sitting in front of a holy being or a magical genie or the bodhisattva of infinite compassion and you were told, I'll grant you anything you want, but you have to tell me. Otherwise, you just have to take your chances on how life is. What would you wish for? I'd like you to just take a moment, all right? And 
go inside and just p- picture yourself in that situation in front of someone who could grant you the boon of your deepest heart's desire. What would you wish for? And if you can feel the connection with that, let that inspire your practice. Stay connected with it as you go through whatever ups and downs. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. So the power of intention, it's not a goal, a timetable, it's not an expectation. There is the the intention to change. There's believing in the possibility. It's a protection when we can get in touch with it. The highest intention, or one of the highest intentions, I know for myself, that really gives an added dimension to practice is realizing that whatever we do, however we purify ourselves, whatever development we, um, we have is going to benefit not only ourselves but everyone. And this is from Nyosho Kempo on the idea that we're not practicing for ourselves alone. We're not practicing for ourselves alone. Everybody is included and involved in the great scope of our prayers and meditations on this perfectly pure motivation, bodhicitta. The very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, bodhicitta. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with this good heart that we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So hope you can realize that whatever your intention is, that it will naturally have its benefit for others. Every moment of practice, we are planting seeds And if we're facing in the right direction, if we're inclining our mind towards freedom, we can let go of the timetable. Just trusting that sincerity in our hearts, that's our end of the process. And then the Dharma takes care of the rest. And I'll close with this passage from the Scottish Himalayan Expedition by W.H. Murray. He says, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That is that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred, A whole stream of events issues from the decision 
raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no person could have dreamt would have come their way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.